This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host as ever, Rod Davis, uh, and in this episode we're going to take a deep dive into charity, philanthropy and mutual aid. Um, so I should apologise up front that I'm suffering slightly from a cold, which somehow I've managed to uh, hold off until this point in January. Um, but I am recording this with a little bit of a sniffle and a sore throat. So if I sound rough at any point during the recording, apologies for that. Uh, I should also hazard that you may get some background noise from uh, one or other of my daughters who are at home homeschooling. So that'll add a bit of uh, additional colour um, if it you know, descends into full-blown people throwing shoes at the door. Uh, that might be a different thing, but hopefully we'll uh, we'll get through it together. So, yeah, what I want to talk about, I think, is an interesting phenomenon that has really kind of come to prominence during the pandemic, which is the idea of mutual aid. This has become something people have paid a lot of attention to. It's not a new idea by by any means, as we'll see during the course of this podcast, but it's become something people are more aware of. I think because a lot of the the sort of upsurge of people wanting to do something and kind of coming together to help uh, each other during the pandemic has has taken the interesting form of new mutual aid networks or kind of networks that are enabled by digital technology and focused around ideas and narratives of mutual aid and solidarity rather than traditional charitable organizations or um, ideas of philanthropy and charity and I think the distinctions between the two um, are something we're going to explore in the podcast and also kind of some of the history of where mutual aid um, and charity have kind of come together and diverged over time so you know as a, as a, a sense of the scale of the phenomenon certainly here in the UK um, and I should say this is not a phenomenon that is remotely uh, kind of um, confined to the UK. I think there's been an upsurge in mutual aid in the US and in lots of other countries. And as we'll come on to in uh, later on in the podcast, actually, I think there's a sense in which mutual aid is perhaps something that is uh, much more uh, prominent normally in, in other cultures of giving around the world than it has been for a while um, in some Western cultures of giving, uh, where sort of philanthropy and charity has taken over. And I think that in itself is something very interesting. But here in the UK, just to give it a sense of the scale, um, so there was a report back in July now, so um, you know these figures probably uh, could be updated, but the new local government, ne- uh, government network, Think Tank over here, did a really interesting report looking at the rise of mutual aid networks and, and what it meant for kind of local activity and they they estimated at that point that over 4,000 such groups have been formed Um, and just to quote they you know what they said about them they said they have been able to reach people more quickly than traditional public services and help them with a wider array of needs in this way the mutual aid phenomenon is a powerful demonstration of community power and again as we'll see later on in the podcast I think there's been a lot of kind of enthusiasm from policymakers and commentators about the idea of uh, mutual aid I think one of the things you know we need to start disentangling uh, uh, the the mutual aid as a phenomenon during the pandemic has been sort of lumped in with a kind of general increase in volunteerism and social action but you know is it more distinctive than that um you know what is it that's different about mutual aid as opposed to charity either in terms of what motivates it or in terms of the structures that 
that they use. And I guess the the big question for the future, well, there's a few of them, and we'll we'll talk about them in in this podcast. Um, is it does this herald a kind of longer term shift, as with many things during the pandemic? Is it something that is particular to this moment in time, or will it kind of result in longer term changes in the way that social action looks, or how we we choose to support causes? And what might that mean for more traditional charity and, and philanthropy? Um, you know, can it harness some of the enthusiasm that has driven this rise in, in mutual aid? Or actually, is it something that kind of provides an alternative or, or some competition for more traditional charity? So let's dive into to kind of the, the distinction and trying to sort of define what we're talking about here. As with a lot of things in, in the world of charity and philanthropy, this is quite difficult because there are sort of multiple overlapping terms here. So, you know, mutual aid is the one that has been used most um, recently and that has its own history but there are also other terms like mutualism cooperativism self-help solidarity all of which kind of capture some aspects of what we're often talking about and you know throughout history the lines have often been very blurred between these different concepts and indeed the, the notion of charity and philanthropy i guess the basic difference um, to try and spell it out is that charity or philanthropy implies the idea that you've got a group of people who've got some assets and you know you've got a problem and maybe that group of people are sort of largely unaffected by that problem and they are using the assets they have to benefit others who are affected by a problem whereas mutual aid is about creating structures within which people of of sort of similar levels of means or who are all affected by an issue are able to help one another in a more reciprocal way so everybody within that network is both a kind of giver and receiver of of help and support. And maybe that's one of the reasons why we've seen more focus on mutual aid during the pandemic. I mean, it's something I think we noted um, in a podcast when I was talking to Rob Williamson from the Community Foundation for Tyne and Weir in Northumberland last year, that this was an unusual compared to sort of previous crises in that it was, you know, we were all affected in some way, whereas sort of traditionally we'd often been talking about trying to fundraise or, or kind of get people to think philanthropically about a a problem that was happening over there to some other group of people and it's a very different fundraising ask when you're asking somebody to think about others at the same time as they themselves have been affected so maybe mutuality and mutual aid is a sort of more natural fit for that context um i think in terms of thinking about the distinction and, and sort of bringing us on to um the history which is something i want to dive into in the second section it's useful to go back to the work of william beveridge here so obviously william beveridge was was one of the the architects of of the modern welfare state in the UK and sort of you know came up with uh, a lot of the the intellectual underpinnings of that um but he also um less famously but I you know uh, well known by people uh, who sort of focus on charity and philanthropy issues wrote a book in 1948 all about um voluntary action um so he was very clear that he always thought that um voluntary action and philanthropy would be an important ongoing part of the fabric of life even in the context of a welfare state Um, and in that book he very clearly sort of tries to distinguish between two different traditions the one that he calls the the sort of charitable philanthropic tradition and then the other one that he calls the the mutual um or self-help tradition and he's he's probably if anything more interested in the latter so for him the distinction he says so mutual aid uh, to quote has its origin in a sense of one's own need for security against misfortune and realization that since one's fellows have the same need by undertaking to help one another all may help themselves whereas philanthropy for him 
him springs from the feeling which makes men who are materially comfortable mentally uncomfortable. To have social conscience is to be unwilling to make a separate peace with the giant social evils of want, disease, squalor, ignorance, idleness. Those are Beveridge's five giants. Escaping into personal prosperities oneself while leaving one's fellows in their clutches. So he's sort of making the same distinction I think I was trying to draw earlier about, on the one hand, you know, mutual aid being something that happens between people who are all similarly affected by a problem, whereas charity and philanthropy is more about somebody trying to have empathy for a different uh, personal group of people who are affected by a problem that they themselves are not. I think before we come on to talk about the history, I think it's worth touching on some of the sort of intellectual underpinnings of this. So a really important figure here is the Russian um, anarchist thinker Peter Kropotkin, who wrote a lot about the idea of mutual aid. In fact, he wrote a book called Mutual Aid. And and at the heart of this um, was his kind of idea that we should get away from a Darwinian view of of, the, of human nature, um, so sort of assuming that competition uh, is the thing that that would define a state of nature if we moved away from the sort of societal structures that we have now, and it would be Hobbes's view in in, Le- in Leviathan that the state of nature would be kind of red in tooth and claw, and everybody would basically just kind of kill each other and try and steal from each other. Kropotkin argued actually, you know, cooperation and collaboration was at least as prevalent in nature as competition, and that actually you know, if you had more faith in human nature, you know, you might believe that people would be more inclined to sort of work together and support one another if left to their own devices. So he he says, for instance, um, the mutual aid tendency in man has so remote an origin and is so deeply interwoven with all the past evolution of the human race that it has been maintained by mankind up to the present time, notwithstanding all vicissitudes of history. It was chiefly evolved during periods of peace and prosperity, but when even the greatest calamities befell men, when whole countries were laid waste by wars and whole populations were desperate decimated by misery or groaned under the yoke of tyranny, the same tendency continued to live in the villages and among the poorer classes in the towns. It still kept them together, and in the long run it reacted even upon those ruling, fighting and devastating minorities which dismissed it as sentimental nonsense. And whenever mankind has had to work out a new social organisation, adapted to a new phase of development, its constructive genius always drew the elements and the inspiration for the new departure from the same ever-living tendency. New economical and social institutions, insofar as they were recreated, of the masses, all have originated from the same source, and the ethical progress of our race, viewed in its broad lines, appears as a gradual extension of the mutual aid principles from the tribe to always larger and larger agglomerations, so as to finally embrace one day the whole of mankind without respect to its diverse creeds, languages, and races. So I think there you know, captured a few things that are important, which is one is you know that idea that um, the basis of human nature is uh, collaboration um, rather than competition, but I think also it gives a sense of how deep entwined notions of mutual aid are and kind of wider thinking about kind of political ideology and it often leads people to you know it's, it has a class element because it's about solidarity often between people within uh, classes and we'll, we'll see later on that, that that gives it links to things like the trade union movement but also it leads to often kind of quite utopian thinking about how society could be uh, if we did away with you know capitalism or or the idea of sort of competition so one thing that's worth noting and we can get too sidetracked into this is actually like Kropotkin his work was there was interest in his work during his life but I don't know that it was taken vastly seriously I think he's taken more seriously as a thinker these days and actually his his take on evolutionary theory has actually stood the test of time relatively well so there's a whole debate within the world of evolutionary biology about the nature of altruism which for 
for a long time was seen as a very problematic concept because you know people who bought into the sort of Richard Dawkins selfish gene idea that actually you know the whole thing that drove evolution forward was uh, competition and the, the desire to kind of propagate one's own genes at the expense of others altruistic behavior which does exist in the natural world as well as in human society was almost impossible to explain and so uh, actually separate ideas of things like kin selection were introduced which is the idea that actually seemingly altruistic behavior is in fact selfish if you take into account acts that are supposed to help your near genetic kin so that actually still your genome is is kind of continued down the line and this has become you know still a huge area of controversy and there was a paper by um the famous harvard biologist eo wilson and corina tarnita and, and maybe one other a few years back that really sort of set the cat amongst the pigeons uh, again by kind of resurrecting some of these ideas of, of kin selection and it's you know still as far as i know a big debate that's that's continuing it's really interesting in itself and probably a topic for an entire other podcast i think finally in this section just before we we come on to some of the history i think on that kind of you know political context around mutual aid i think that's where the understanding of the the way in which concepts of things like solidarity relate to mutual aid is important so as i say part of that is uh class solidarity and so actually you know the development of mutual aid is often tied in with ideas of the working classes sort of helping one another uh, and that um, led into the development of things like, you know, the cooperative movement, but also uh, the wider kind of trade union and labour movement um, in the UK, in the US and elsewhere. But also, I think that that idea of solidarity was very important, particularly for immigrant communities um, or minorities within society who were often excluded from the mainstream and weren't able to access support you know where that was available from the state and weren't also very you know likely to attract philanthropic support because they were seen as outcasts of some kind so their only option really was to support one another through sort of networks of solidarity and, and mutual aid you know that being said quite often that was pitched as fraternity which immediately sort of suggests gender exclusion but there were separate um networks of women uh, kind of helping each other in a, in a mutual way as well okay well that brings us to the end of, of sort of setting the scene there um, in the next section, I want to come on and look a bit in detail at the history of mutual aid in the UK. So stay tuned for that. So we're back uh, for the second section. And yeah, in this section, as I say, I want to look at a bit of the development of um, the kind of concept of mutual aid and how that's been reflected in organisational structures within sort of wider civil society over time. And a lot of this will uh, have relevance to, to other contexts, but I'm sort of focusing on the UK just to, to take one specific one, because I think there's some sort of interesting lessons from it. So the history of mutual aid as a basis for organisation, I mean, if we believe Peter Kropotkin, it goes back at least as far as any idea of human society but let's let's take as a starting point at the very least you know it's definitely there in the middle ages in the form of things like the guilds which were organizations that allowed you know merchants or people working in a similar industry to kind of uh, support one another and um, through uh, kind of mutual aid networks they would have forms of sort of social insurance for when times got hard or there was sickness and, and that kind of thing I mean it's interesting to think about the, the guilds as well in that they they show one of the interesting facets of mutual aid which is often 
mutual aid networks will both combine the the mutual aid idea in that they're sort of designed and set up so that the people who are the members of the network can help one another but then they also have a sort of charitable and philanthropic aspect because the guilds themselves then would do social work to help other people outside of their network Um, because the guilds were obviously sort of you know the, the middle and merchant classes and so they were relatively affluent but they would also do work setting up arms houses or um, kind of feeding the poor as well and that's something that you see in the later history of mutual aid as well i think it's interesting you know, going back to what peter kropotkin said in that very very long quote I, I read in the last section he talked about you know the vicissitudes of history and i think it is true that mutual aid has kind of waxed and waned as an idea um you know even if it is apparently fundamental uh, as a part of human nature you know the reality is that it's been more or less prominent dependent on uh, what the kind of views of the government were at the time what the sort of social infrastructure was and and you know uh, other factors like religion as well so i'd say you know in, in terms of the medieval guilds that we were talking about um many of those had catholic associations of one sort or another um often you know they were very prevalent in uh, europe at the time which remained catholic so when the reformation took place um in the uk uh in the i guess 15th 16th century 15th century yeah, the um uh, a lot of the infrastructure of those medieval guilds was was destroyed along with a lot more of the sort of infrastructure of um, uh, sort of Catholic uh, alms giving um, and and sort of support for the poor. So you know, a lot of what had been the sort of strongest exemplification of mutual aid was was destroyed. And I think what we see then is kind of the the next big period in in history when mutual aid really comes to the fore is in the Victorian era. And this is this is really I think when you look back to the history of the UK where a lot of the the attention gets focused so there was there was an increasing amount of focus i think led by views on the nature of poverty um, at the time um, on things like the idea of self-help. So there was a book written by a man called Samuel Smiles uh, in 1859, which is called Self-Help and is all about, you know, actually the idea of people kind of, you know, not expecting others to to solve their problems for them. And and it's actually more more about you kind of doing what is required to, well, as the name suggests, help yourself. And and some of this, you know, was was exemplified in harsh approaches to, to charity and I guess we probably talked on the podcast before about the Victorian notions of sort of problematic indiscriminate giving and actually kind of um, making assessments of deserving and, and the undeserving poor. Although, again, that's an idea that has a much longer history than that. But in turn, you know, it also reflected, I think, a more positive desire among the the sort of emerging working class that that was starting to have its own identity of the opportunities that there were if they found um, a sort of sense of collectivism that through some of these concepts of of kind of mutual aid and support they they might be able to overcome some of the barriers that society presented them with and you know some of the elements of that are probably you know still remain quite well known today so for instance the idea of like cooperatives um, started or the you the sort of origin story is with the the Rochdale Society of Equitable Pioneers back in the 1840s who who kind of had the Rochdale principles and that's obviously a sort of business focused approach and there's still you know a very uh, healthy cooperative movement around the world and also things like building societies which have their roots very much in mutualism I think over time you know there are still building societies dotted around the place a lot of them maybe have sort of demutualized or went through a process of demutualization in sort of 1980 
1980s and 1990s. So actually, they they don't really have such strong links to their historical origins, but they're still kind of there. Um, so they 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 keep the idea of mutuality in people's minds. But I think the one that I really want to look at because it's not really that well known today, but it was it was a huge factor in in the Victorian era and the sort of um, 19th century more broadly is the uh, the friendly societies. So these were mutual aid. Uh, organizations that were usually founded by working men and then basically what you had you had a, a society or a club or an association where all members paid into a, a central pot and then partly this functioned like an insurance policy as I, as I was saying with the medieval guilds where you would put in some money and then if you you were kind of injured or sick or whatever and unable to to earn and provide for your family you would get a, a payment um, based on a sort of calculated rate which um, as we'll come on to in a moment was itself a, a sort of bonus of contention but it also had a kind of wider function where the money you paid in acted a bit like a kitty to pay for social and recreational gatherings so it would kind of bring people together and there would be dinners and kind of outings and things all organized around the friendly society so i mean friendly societies you know they are largely a phenomenon of the 19th century but they were there for a long time before or the concept was there so um you can be traced back there's an um, a reference to them in a, a essay of 1697 by daniel defoe and they they were around um and there's uh you know in the 18th century and um again there was a, a social investigator fm eden did a, a paper looking at these in the the end of the 18th century so 1797 and he remarked no institutions have ever made a more considerable pro- progress in a short space of time than has been made within a few years by the benefit clubs or friendly societies and it's really interesting i mean again as i said earlier it's kind of a reflection of the industrialization of society and a kind of growing class consciousness i think also there was an element where they were um, as i mentioned in the first section important for minorities or religious groups who may have been actually relatively wealthy but were also kind of excluded from wider society so people like the huguenots um here in the uk who were kind of french merchants who moved over and had a very um were sort of largely excluded from mainstream society uh, and you know i think that remains a very important part of the modern context around mutualism maybe as we'll discuss um when we come into the final section that actually you know for groups who have a shared uh, gender or, or kind of ethnicity identity actually mutual aid is an important part of of kind of supporting and, and maintaining that identity so coming back to the friendly societies um you know as as the the 19th century wore on the numbers of these rose dramatically i mean it's quite hard as with well, anything to do with the voluntary sector to to get exact figures because a lot of this wasn't really captured you know they weren't particularly regulated by a single regulator and nobody was was sort of taking figures and also the set the friendly society sector was quite a confusing mishmash of large organizations that were often kind of federated into local branches that had quite a lot of autonomy themselves and then there were also small independent organizations and it was only in 1875 that there was finally an, uh, a requirement for them to register and even then it was only voluntary but just to get an idea of the scale if we go back to beverage again he he says that in voluntary action the book he wrote um in 1905 there were approximately 20,000 branches of what were known as the affiliated orders so those were the, the sort of big uh, organizations that then had local federated branches and also around uh, 6,700 standalone friendly societies 
without branches. I think what's interesting to look at in this history is the relationship between government and the friendly societies. I mean, largely the the government in the in the Victorian era was very keen not to get involved in voluntary activity of of any kind. It didn't really want to interfere because that would kind of carry an implication that they were acknowledging the state should have a role in welfare provision, and that was a big Victorian no no. But there were sort of ongoing concerns about financial mismanagement at some of these friendly societies some of that was around a huge inconsistencies in the way that the payout rates were calculated and some of it was you know much more basically about the fact that a lot of them seem to spend far more on the social element than on the the kind of welfare provision element so over the course of the century there were quite a few government inquiries and bits of legislation and that culminated in a royal commission uh, between 1871 and 74 and then in 1875 was the um, the friendly Societies Act that we mentioned before. And that kind of led to a lot of the issues being settled. I mean, the, the friendly societies were still independent, but there were some sort of checks and balances on, on what they did. And again, according to Beveridge, he says, you know, in the decades that followed the Commission's report, the leading friendly societies one by one took steps to put themselves financially in order. They showed that sickness benefit could be administered on a democratic basis by a voluntary organisation. And I think that's an interesting quote because it also leads us on to an answer to the question of, well, if they were so great, why are the friendly societies? Society's not really around anymore, and why don't we know about them? To, to some extent, the story is that they were victims of their own success. So, you know, by by demonstrating both the importance of providing for people who are able to work, un, unable to work through old age or sickness um, or injury, and also the feasibility of doing so through a kind of insurance model, they actually paved the way for state national insurance. So here, you know, the National Insurance Act of 1911, which was introduced by the Liberal government at the time, built on the work of the friendly societies. Um, it didn't immediately, as, as a lot of these things, it didn't immediately just replace them outright. You know, this story is often told is that that was the death knell for friendly societies and they disappeared. But Geoffrey Finlayson, a historian who's wrote, written a great book called Citizen, State and Social Welfare in Britain, he says of this, uh, if the ideology of the 1911 Act had had much, had much to do with voluntarism, so too did its implementation. The original intention was to entrust the administration of health insurance under Part 1 of the Act to the Mutual Aid Friendly Societies. So actually the government wanted to introduce uh, legislation to ensure there was national insurance provided by the state. But they were quite happy for the friendly societies to provide that. But then when, as ever with these things, the the devil happens in the detail of implementation. So the original version of the National Insurance Bill stipulated, actually, that in order to qualify as an approved society, so one of the deliverers of this this um, this new insurance, an organisation, uh, quote, must not work for profit and must be democratically controlled by the insured members. So they were going to say they need to have the model of a friendly society. They need to be a non-profit with a democratic structuring. But in the passage of that bill through Parliament, those conditions were broadened out and actually opened the door to commercial companies, so commercial assurance companies, to come in. And that was really the start of the downfall. And some people, again, sort of tell the story that was basically it. You know, that's all she wrote, folks, for for, for friendly societies. But others like um, P.H. Uh, J.H. Gosden, who's written a, a very good book on voluntary uh, action and self-help. So he says they not only, the friendly societies not only survive, 
survive, but apparently flourished until the 1940s, and the changes which were then made in the administrative structure of the national insurance system. So it's sort of unclear exactly what happened, but there was, for, for various reasons, you know, that, that act, as it was introduced eventually, started a sort of process of decline, which certainly by the time of the establishment of the welfare state, state uh, saw friendly societies very much on the wane. I guess in terms of the post-war history, it's just worth saying, you know, what what happened to notions of mutuality and, and uh, self-help and, and that kind of thing. If we're not talking about the friendly societies anymore, the, the key thing here to understand is that the establishment of the welfare state, a lot of people thought would sort of spell the, the end of philanthropy full stop because there wouldn't be a need for it anymore. You know, obviously we know looking back in history that wasn't the case, but it did mean that a lot of organisations had to kind of rethink what they were doing and shift from historically what they might have been doing in terms of providing basic welfare services to thinking about their their position in in relation to the welfare state and a lot of them shifted more towards kind of activism and challenging the state and campaigning and that reflected a kind of broader spirit of campaigning in the 60s and 70s where we saw the growth of a lot of social movements calling for rights for previously marginalized groups so um uh, kind of women people with disabilities lgbtq homeless people and lots of organizations that we still know today like shelter help the aged gingerbread child poverty action group all kind of came around during that period and again you know finlayson in writing about these notes that one that things interesting is that that meant that there's sort of distinctions between mutual aid organisations, service-giving groups, and campaigning societies were often blurred. And that that kind of complicated the picture. So he says, you know, the emergence of radical activism was a new departure, even, even from the old mutual aid tradition of trade union and state paternalism. And in that sense, it could outflank the position held by the Labour Party, not to mention the Conservatives. So, you know, we, we get to this picture where there are definitely um, still examples of mutual aid, but they're now kind of tied into this broader mix of uh, social movements and kind of campaigning organisations and the lines between those those different uh, elements of what's going on are quite blurred and i think that's that's largely i guess the picture that we've led with, you know left with up to the present day i think we've seen a little bit of sort of enthusiasm for elements of mutualism in things like the the kind of big society agenda that we had in the uk in uh, sort of from about 2010 onwards but a lot of that i think was more around the kind of instrumental role of cooperatives and mutuals as deliverers of service um, and there were things like quite a lot of interest in whether you could create mutuals from within the welfare state so perhaps from within the nhs and spin them out as as new kinds of organizations basically to try and sort of triangulate uh, a form of reducing the size of the state but overcoming uh kind of criticisms that by doing that in an entirely for-profit way um you would be you know causing problems of sort of undermining the public service ethos uh, of some of these these institutions actually i think you know mutualism or cooperativism was felt by the conservative government of, of that time as a way of kind of introducing market forces but protecting some of that that important sort of um, public interest uh, function um, and I guess you know that's kind of probably where the the policy landscape and thinking has been around mutual aid um, up until you know the pandemic and that's this renewed interest that we've seen now I think has been hugely interesting um, because it's kind of it, it feels different to that and it's sort of brought some of these more fundamental questions to light and that's what we're going to come on and talk about in the next section so stay tuned for that 
Okay, so we're back. And in this final section, I just want to think through a few questions about what the current enthusiasm for mutual aid and its prominence uh, means um, and kind of where we should be looking to sort of uh, to understand this trend. So I guess that, you know, the most basic question, as with a lot of things to do with the pandemic, is, you know, is this just a flash in the pan that's happening now because of the unique circumstances we find ourselves in? Or is it something that heralds a longer term shift? So a lot, you know, the new mutual aid groups that we've seen spring up, um, the sort of networked ones, are they going to have longevity or are they only a sort of short term response to a unique moment and is that partly kind of predicated on um, people being you know on furlough or sort of with state support but able to work because they're not currently employed and, and is it also a reflection of the fact that people are kind of being forced to focus far more on their, their kind of hyper local surroundings because of lockdown measures um, and actually as we return to something more approaching normal life will will some of those factors kind of dissipate and actually we'll see less interest. So I think another question that, that ties into a sort of broader trend around the um, enthusiasm and interest in social movements and kind of grassroots activism and, and networked approaches, which is something we've talked about a lot on this podcast. You know, mutual aid, is, mutual aid networks are one example of that. I guess I think a fascinating question is, is part of the appeal of these things that they offer more in terms of participation or the opportunity to participate than traditional models of giving or even you know quite a lot of models of volunteering so you know in that early phase of the pandemic during that first lockdown I, I got the real sense a lot of people were really sort of struggling to have a sense of agency and control and actually kind of involvement in a local mutual aid network and, and going and kind of delivering food to, to neighbours or picking up shopping was something that really allowed people to feel like they were doing something and I guess does that show that actually there's an appetite for more participation Um, and is that something that you know more traditional charitable organizations need to take on board and think through to make sure that they haven't fallen into into the trap of being too transactional with their supporters but then also I guess the flip side of that is participation may be something that people want and were able to do in those particular circumstances but it does also demand more of people and if mutual aid networks rely on people being able to participate to a high degree as a sort of participation premium does that limit the chances of longer term sustainability as people you know that first flush of enthusiasm wanes and people think oh actually i haven't got enough time to to do that you know so will they they have to find ways of kind of combining with with lower intensity involvement i guess a a sort of macro question which i raised up front as well is does all the enthusiasm and growth enthusiasm for mutual aid and the sort of growth of these mutual aid networks suggest that we're you know actually being able to enlarge the pie of civil society as it were or are we doing that thing of just slicing the pie in a different way you know is people's involvement in in mutual aid going to be a replacement for more traditional charitable giving or volunteering that they would have otherwise done another question i think is interesting you know is there is there a downside to to mutual aid so actually you know, can an emphasis on group membership and support within a group become exclusionary if done wrong? And I think we have seen some elements of this within mutual aid where you know people have reported that actually, you know, you get kind of subgroups within the group and, and hidden elites uh, kind of emerging, um, classic sort of Joe Freeman tyranny of structurelessness stuff. But also more broadly, kind of if you're 
if if the idea of a mutual aid network, as I say, is that it's kind of support for people who are within the network, if the the you know spoken or unspoken criteria that allow people to be part of that network actually contain biases for for things like class or demographics, and other people are left out, that could be problematic, particularly in a local area. And if there is no combination of that sort of mutual aid element with the more outward looking sort of charitable philanthropic idea, as there was with the friendly societies and the guilds then are we going to see actually people who are excluded from those mutual aid networks suffer i think there's also a question you know linked to that about whether mutual aid networks build social capital and if they do is that only bonding social capital so so you know sort of social capital and and connections between people who are broadly the sort of people who would have mixed anyway and are of you know similar kind of uh, class or levels of affluence or does it actually bring people together from different walks of life and different communities i think you know in terms of the policy interest in in mutual aid that's an important question because they're often kind of sold as something that, that does have benefits in terms of that um uh, that that kind of growth of social capital i think there's there's a really interesting question about the exact role of technology when it comes to the formation of mutual aid networks you know I think, as ever, when we're looking at some of these structures that have been around for a long time, approaches like sort of mutual aid and more kind of you know, networked or movement-based approaches, the the reason that they perhaps haven't been as prominent um, as more centralised or hierarchical approaches historically is that you know they have weaknesses of one kind or another. Um, and this is something I've written an entire paper about, which I can share links in the show notes to. And I think to me the question is: Are the affordances of technology so those things? that they're enabling us to do genuinely overcoming some of those challenges or are we just sort of in danger of rediscovering all of these well-known historical you know issues in terms of you know the formation of kind of hidden elites within groups and and limitations on the ability to kind of organize long-term strategy and those sorts of things and i think that is not a question that i've yet found an answer to or i haven't sort of seen answered but i think it's a really interesting one to think through and then i guess finally um in terms of understanding you know mutual aid and the prospects for it within civil society here in the UK or within you know kind of global north i think there's a lot to be said for trying to learn from other cultures around the world which have very rich traditions of sort of informal support and mutual aid that have been you know carried on and are still very prominent today and actually, they're probably looking at us all kind of sitting here and, and thinking about mutual aid and, and stroking our chins and saying, well, yeah, obviously, that's what we've been doing all along. So, you know, we did research at CAF that came out last year looking at uh, cultures of giving in, in East Africa and a few countries there. And certainly one of the things that came through that very strongly was in, you know notions of individual mutual support and care. So things like Harambi uh, in Kenya or Ubuntu in South Africa and sort of Southern Africa are a very big part of the giving cultures um, and play a big role in shaping civil society there. And, you know, lots of other countries around the world have their own comparable traditions, either sort of at a national level or for particular kind of communities within those countries. And I think, you know, we would do well, as with many other elements of understanding giving, to be more outward looking and sort of broaden 
horizons in terms of you know our understanding of giving and the, the differences between traditions around the world and what we can learn from them so that brings us to, to the end of the podcast you know i hope you've enjoyed that i'll put links in the show notes to um uh, lots of things that i mentioned there that you can read more uh, about mutual aid if you're interested more broadly in issues around uh, charity uh, philanthropy civil society do check out the giving thought pages at the CAF website follow me on twitter at rodri underscore h underscore davis or if you like stuff that's a bit more about uh, academia um, and writing on philanthropy check out at philiteracy if you've got ideas for topics we could cover on the podcast or people i could interview uh, drop me a line at giving thought at cafonline.org other than that just like subscribe tell all your friends about it leave us a nice review on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and i'll see you next time bye